take refuge in the Sangha. Good evening, everyone. Um, <clears throat> we talked this evening a little bit about three aspects of Zen practice. And Hakuin Zenji calls them a deep faith, deep determination, strong determination, and deep, strong inquiry. And usually we emphasize the faith part. That is, we usually emphasize be in the present moment, have faith that this is the moment that we live in, that the past is um, manufactured by our memory, by our mind, that the future does not exist except in our um, anticipation, planning of it. So usually we emphasize be in the present moment, be in the present moment, that life is lived in the present moment, that the present moment is where, we, where the juice of creativity happens. It doesn't happen in the past or future. And that our challenges all need to be met in the present moment. To become embodied, to become anchored in direct experience is the way we usually emphasize practice here. And that, that unfolds, of course, many different ways. But there are two other aspects of practice which are vital. One of which is usually considered the hallmark of the Zen school, and that's inquiry. Great inquiry, deep inquiry, deep curiosity, deep investigation. Now, we live in a very rational, very reasonable time of the universe. We have this amazing technology that actually works most of the time. We have the internet, we have watches, you can go to almost any block, or at least any neighborhood in Portland, and you can get gas for an amazing vehicle that will drive you know, 80 miles an hour down the freeway, and you can talk to Japan at the same time. <clears throat> we live in a very, what we think of as a very reasonable um, era. And so, you know, basically all of us have this, these assumptions that the world has a certain reason to it, a certain order to it, a certain um, pattern to it, and it's certainly exemplified by the, the nature of our lives. But if we have the great Northwest earthquake, and suddenly, just like that, our, all of our electricity is gone, and there is no more gasoline, suddenly all that we have depended upon, all we thought was reasonable, is gone, just like that. Or we find a little lump someplace, or we're feeling particularly tired, or we go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you know, I think we better do some more tests here. And they, they kind of begin to call you in for private consultations and think, you know, there's some, some bad news here. And suddenly, after a, a diagnosis that is scary, that says, oop, all that we counted on, all that we depended upon, all that we hoped is going to happen, suddenly is not relevant anymore. So, and of course, many people have that experience. We had a nice monk here a couple of weeks ago who was in the tsunami um, in Japan in 2011. And he was, you know, on top of a big truck. The truck was spinning around in the tsunami, and all the cars that were around him were washed away. And he, he barely lived. He hung on to his life by just a hair. And suddenly, all that he thought mattered just completely disappeared. It was gone, just 
like that. Well, that, of course, is possible for any of us. All this structure of life that we've built up, all this, you know, our financial uh, security, our banking system, our whatever, gone, just like that. So the inquiry part is an inquiry, well, what is left? What is left? What is real? What is at the bottom? What is, what is it that's dependable? What is it that's reliable? This consciousness that I have, this sense of I am, where did it come from? Before I was born, where was it? Did it come out of nothing? What is real? Now, in this particular day and age, we are, whether we like it or not, we all are very materialistic. We really regard ourselves as our bodies. We really regard the, you know, having the right stuff around us. Even though we may be very spiritual people, we all have our stuff. We all depend upon our stuff. But that is only temporary stuff. And in the middle of the night, when we are sick, in the middle of the night, when we have, when we see that it can all be gone, just like that, that all the things that we thought were so relevant, what is really important? So this inquiry, this deep inquiry, what is the essence of my life? What is it that's alive in me? Where was I before my parents were born? What is it? In the Korean tradition, uh, they have, a couple, they have several stages of practice, as in all traditions. The first stage of practice is, is becoming grounded in the present moment. That's always samatha, you know, uh, samadhi, uh, being present, is the foundation for most spiritual traditions. But if we're just present, there's a kind of boredom that happens. You know, been there, done that. Okay, I'm calm now, so what? Um, oh yes, my, my life is now, I'm not, I'm not thrown by all of the, the waves of my anguish like I used to be, and I really found a, a place of centeredness. Great, wonderful, good, good, good work. But the next level down is this curiosity. Well, what is it that speaks? What is it that hears? We all could hear this plane engine what is it that actually hears? Now, because we all grew up in a scientific culture, you know, immediately the brain says, oh, it's the tympanic membrane going to the uh, otic nerve, going to the, you know, some part of the brain, which I can't remember anymore. And it's a process of the brain. And what is it that's conscious? What is it that's alive? The The... Uh, some of the theories about consciousness is the, the one kind of scientific theory is comp consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the physiology of the brain, an epiphenomenon of the neuroanatomy of the electrical impulses of the brain. But another model, which is that consciousness is always present, and that this brain is simply a receiver, like a television set. That the television set, you know, goes wonky. It doesn't mean that, that consciousness, uh, it means the receiver is somehow being a little bit troubled, but consciousness is unaffected. Just as in the same way, if we lose our Bluetooth connection to the internet, you know, and it, the 
whole thing falls apart, it doesn't mean that the internet has gone down. What is it that's conscious? What is it that's always present? What is it that is there in the middle of the night? What is it that knows whether we're awake or asleep? What is it that's breathing? What is this life energy? Now, we can ask that on an intellectual level, and of course it's appropriate to ask that in a rational way like I'm doing right now. But for some people, it, it catches them deep in their heart. What is it? What is this thing? And usually it catches us when our orderly world, when our orderly sense of things is really disrupted. And all that we have kind of grown to depend upon, all those predictable things that we, you know, we depend upon our toothbrush and our toothpaste and all of our medicines and whatever else we happen to have in our, our momentarium, when those are taken away, and we have a kind of shock, people, you know, we've seen people in, in tsunamis and earthquakes, they're stunned, they're shocked after a big tragedy, an airplane wreck or train wreck, they're shocked. They're shocked because all they depended upon suddenly is just severed. What's left? What is it that's always present? What is it that's reliable? We talk in Buddhism all the time about impermanence. We keep saying everything changes. Everything is coming into being and then disappears. You know, none of us are wearing the same clothes we were wearing probably five years ago, ten years ago. Certainly none of us look the way we looked five years ago. Certainly none of us think the way we looked five years, thought five years ago. That who we think we are is just changing, 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 changing. And yet, every person here has a sense of presence. What is that? Sometime uh, Ramana Maharshi, the great Hindu master, uh, said the only true thing is that which is present in deep, dreamless sleep. Well, what is present in deep, dreamless sleep? What is present when things fall apart? All of us work so hard to get our lives together, work so hard for understanding or security or all the different things that, as human beings, that we are, are uh, kind of built to try to develop, achieve, create. But when all that begins to fall apart, what is it that's important? So when we're sitting with somebody who is dying, and somebody sees their whole life and all those things just, or you, see, you start giving away the stuff that you have spent so much time collecting, or someone dies and you have to start passing on their life, all those things that were so important, suddenly they die and they're not important anymore. They're just, they have lost their meaning. What is it? So this inquiry, this kind of curiosity about the, the very essence of our being, about the nature of life, is one aspect of practice that takes us. And another way of looking at this is that we all feel often a sense of dissatisfaction inside, feel a dis-ease. You know, things are just constantly grating. We kind of feel like nothing is quite satisfying, nothing is quite right. You know, what, what seems so good has a kind of grating inside. The heart is not yet at rest. What is it that's not at rest? What is it that is not yet clarified? So this kind of inquiry is partly what koans are about, a certain, certain level of koan. Koans are, in the Zen Buddhist tradition, 
They're the, the cases. Koans are considered public records. They're records of a certain awakening experience. They're an expression uh, of an exchange of two people about an awakening experience. So one uh, very famous one is somebody goes into a Zen teacher. He's been practicing for a number of years. And he walks into the, the teacher's office, or son's in room, whatever. And uh, the teacher starts yelling at him. He says, who is it that dragged this corpse in here? He gets a stick and drives the guy out of the office. And the guy's left, left with this question, what in the world is he talking about? Who is it that drags this corpse in here? It's interesting, if we look at our bodies, our bodies are made up of chemicals. They're made up of calcium, magnesium, and zinc, and phosphorus. You know, they're made up of proteins. They're made up of amino acids. They're made up of molecules. Well, where's the life in a molecule? Where's the life in the calcium? Where's the life in water? CNO, H2O. Where's the life in these things? The elements aren't alive. What is it that's alive? What is it that moves these elements around? What is it? that breathes and sees and hears. And so he, the teacher was trying to very vividly kind of put that question in really deeply. Sometimes people have koans like, you know, uh, where was I before my parent was born? And it's a really interesting question. Where was I before my parent was born? Well, obviously he's not talking about your body. Obviously he's not talking about a transient emotional state. It's saying, where is this very thing you call awareness? Where is this very thing you call consciousness? Did it come into being, or is it always there? If it's always there, what? Where? So this sense of inquiry at ever, ever deeper and more intimate levels is one of the aspects of practice that helps take us down to what is fundamental, what is true. One of the hallmarks of practice, as I just mentioned, of, of a mature practice is when we are really sick and lying in bed and feeling miserable, does practice help or not? If it all goes out the window, then we knew we had a certain level of, of comfort and confidence, but it didn't actually penetrate into our hearts. The other aspect of practice, so we have the aspect of faith, faith in this moment, faith that, that things are constantly being unfolded, things are constantly coming out of the great mystery, how did this, how did this stuff ever arise? You know, just things just appear on a moment-to-moment basis. Uh, not so much moment-to-moment basis as they, they appear through karma, through cause and effect, different levels. So we have faith, faith that there is something to be seen, something that we can know, something that is really vitally important in this moment. We have inquiry, what is that? And we have the determination to go to keep looking and looking and looking. Determination to not rest until we see for ourselves what the great teachers, the great masters talked about. One of the books that I used to um, uh, love, and I still do, love is called The Practice of Zen by Garma Sisi Chang. I got this copy out of the Venerable Arlene's library over there. Uh, and it was written back in the 60s. 1959, and so when I started practicing in 1968, this was a venerable book at that time, and one of the probably half dozen books on Buddhism that were at all uh, 
interesting to a 19-year-old. And well, my first teacher, Roshi Kaplow, uh, the Zen Center of Rochester, he used to read from the practice of Zen. We'd have long retreats. So Shannon, he would always read these things, and I found them so stirring and inspiring. You know, little Dharma talks by some of the ancient Chinese masters, plus some, some little snippets of people's life story. So this is a snippet of one of the master's life stories that deals with this question of inquiry, deals with this question of uh, investigation. And this is entitled Zen Master Wu Wins Story. Um, and the way that this is a very unscholarly thing. He did, I don't know when Wu Wen was. I don't know anything about him. I don't know his history, whether he's probably in the Tang Dynasty, the 11, 1200s. I have no idea. But this is the story. These are translations. They're not, they're not just made up. They're translations. When I first saw Master Tao Wen, he taught me to work on the koan, it is neither mine, nor Buddha, nor thing. It. It means, what's the, the essence? It's not what we think. It's not some ultimate truth. Nor is it anything. People are always saying, how's it going? How's it going? How's it going? How's a really good question. How is it going? What is the essence here? And I usually say, it is going well. But there's a, there's a koan there. There's a real koan. People are always asking you, How, what, you know, what is it? What is it? How is it going? If you take it in that way, it's neither mind nor Buddha nor anything. Well, what is it then? If it's not your mind, it's not, it's not the ultimate truth, the Buddha, and it's not a thing, what is it? So he started working on that koan. Later, another teacher, Yun Feng, Yue Shan, and I, with several others, vowed to help each other out striving for the ultimate enlightenment. Still later, I went to see Hui Shi, who taught me to work on the koan Mu. Another koan right now, uh, uh, another koan is a very classic. It's the first koan in a book called The, the Gateless Gate. Uh, the Gateless Gate is, is a koan of collections, and it just says there's this enormous gate, and it looks like it's really hard to get through, but once you go through it, you can't see any gate back there. It's completely gone. And the first koan of the Mumon Khan is Joshu's Mu. A monk in all seriousness went to ask the great master Joshu, who was one of the preeminent Chinese Zen masters, is it true that even such a lowly, miserable thing as a dog, dogs were eaten, they were flea-bitten, they were diseased, they were kind of at the bottom of the pecking order in China. I often think rats are the best analogy in this culture. Is it true that even such a miserable thing as a rat uh, has a Buddha nature? Now, one of the basic teachings of all of Buddhism is that our true nature, we have a true nature. There's something here that is transcendent. There's something magnificent that comes into being. There's something that is absolutely spectacular and, and amazing about this particular moment in this particular life. So this monk is going and asking him and says, is it true, I, I've got it, of course, but is it true even a rat has it? And the great master Joshi says, no. And so the koan, well, what does he mean when he says, you don't have it, the rat doesn't have it, nothing has it, dogs don't have it, there's nothing that has it. What does that mean? So that's a koan to really begin looking at. If you exclude everything else, in the Hindu tradition, they have a 
phrase that says neti, neti, not this, not this, not this, not this, not this. The ultimate truth is not this, not this, not this, not this, not this, not this. The ultimate truth is no thing, and so you just negate every single thing that happens. What's left? That's the koan. Uh, then I journey into Chang Lu, where I practice with my companion. When I met Chen of Wei Shang, he asked me, you have now practiced for six or seven years as a monk. What have you understood? I answered, every day I just feel that there is nothing in my mind. So this particular guy had somehow calmed his mind down, quieted his mind, made his mind very serene, maybe made his mind very empty. A lot of, a lot of sutras talk about having a, a big, calm, empty mind. And he had kind of, kind of gotten to a particular state. Well, the thing with all states, whether they be enlightenment states, or they be deluded states, or they be pain, or whether they be pleasure, all states are passing through. All states are temporary. So even a great big state of a great big, calm, bright, oceanic feeling is only a temporary state. So he says, well, what have you understood? And this guy says, well, I've, I've got this really big, calm state of mind. How great. And then he goes on. Seeing that I had no true understanding, he asked, from what source has your understanding been derived? So what is the source of a calm, clear mind? What is the source of thought? What is the source of life? What is the source of the life energy? An abstract answer, just an intellectual answer is, oh, God, oh, true nature, oh, Buddha nature, oh, Brahma, oh, whatever. The actual direct vital experience of it is what he's asking about, because that's all that satisfies the heart. Seeing I had no true understanding, he said, from what source has your understanding been derived? I was not sure whether I really knew the truth or not, so I dared not answer. He then said to me, you can hold on to your work in quietness, but you lose it during activity. That is, you can sit in the zendo and meditate and be very profound and still, but as soon as you get out and engage with the world, you lose it. This alarmed me, for he had hit upon my weak spot. What should I do? I inquired. To understand this matter, Ching answered, have you heard what Chung Lao Tzu said? This is the Tao Te Ching. He said, to understand this great matter, face south to see the dipper. That is, face south to see the north star, is the, is the koan. Saying this, he left me abruptly. So this particular koan, face south to see the North Star, has no rational answer. But he's asking about, what is it that's always true? What is it that's always true? What is it that you always see? You see it when you're facing the North Star. You see it when you're facing the South Star. What is it that always is, is true? What is it that always sees? What is it that's alive? What is it that's aware? What is consciousness itself? There's ways of understanding this particular question. But it's phrased in this very kind of interesting and poetic way that captures the attention. But to understand this, face south to see the dipper. As a result, I became unconscious of walking when I walked and of sitting when I sat. That is, he entered a kind of samadhi, a kind of one-pointedness. He, he pondered this question so deeply. He was reflecting on it and chewing over it and looking into it so deeply that he basically... Um, entered a kind of samadhi state. Now, all of us have done this sometime. We have a problem that is on our mind, something that grips us, something we have to solve. 
I'm just thinking about it, thinking about it, looking at it, and trying to understand it, and other things aren't interesting. And most people have had some experience like that in their life. Well, this is a more profound level of that same experience. I put aside the practice on the no koan, where we can concentrate my mind on trying to understand what in heaven's name he had meant by facing south to see the dipper. One day when I came to the hall of service and sat with a group of monks, the doubt sensation, the kind of the questioning in my heart, stuck with me, refused to dissolve. This kind of doubt sensation. The time for dinner came and passed. Suddenly I felt my mind become bright and void and light and transparent. My human thoughts broke into pieces like skin peeling, as if I had merged to the void. And I saw neither person nor thing appearing before me. I returned to consciousness about a half an hour later and found my body was running with sweat. Immediately I understood the meaning of seeing the sit dipper by facing south. I went to see Chen. Whatever questions he put to me, I could answer without hindrance or difficulty. Also, I could compose stanzas freely and effortlessly. However, I had still not stripped myself to the point of reaching the state of the next state of practice. And then he goes on and he finds that he has all sorts of problems as usual because any state disappears. And then he finds that he's, these problems, like a problem with mosquitoes, he goes out for a private meditation retreat in the mountains and suddenly the mosquitoes are all over him. And his calm, bright state of mind, all of his understanding just disappears in the, in the onslaught of mosquitoes. So it tells him, oh, I still have more, I still have to kind of see this more deeply. So many, many, many of the great masters in our tradition have had this deep inquiry. And especially as those of us who are getting a little bit older, we realize, oh, all that stuff that I've done in my life, all those situations, all that trauma, all that anguish, all that trying to get, it's gone. Where'd it go? How'd it end up being, you know, 66 years old, 70 years old? So I think that for people of practice, this kind of investigation into the essence of things is both really interesting really boring to the intellect because, you know, how much, how often can you think, what is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of this? It doesn't, you know, after a while you get say it's pretty boring. But if you go into the feeling, into the, the sensation, into the consciousness itself, into the sensation of something alive, and you're really curious about that, it suddenly opens up into a whole marvelously rich world. So it has to be done with, through the heart in a way, not through the mind our mind can kind of point us in a certain direction. So I think this particular aspect of curiosity about the depths of our own being, someone just was at our beginner's mind retreat up at the uh, monastery, and it's her first taste of a little bit longer sitting. And uh, she said that uh, she was astounded at how rich her own being was. She hadn't really realized that by looking into the nature of her mind, suddenly things would open up and she would find that she, the depth that she thought she, the, the limited person she thought she was just was blown away because she suddenly realized, oh, there is this vast, vast experience inside of me. Vast challenges to it. And so then she's now curious, what is this, what is this thing that I've touched? So, 
great faith in this present moment, in this life energy, great determination to really live ethically, to understand the deep questions of life, the deep questions that have been at the root of all of the great spiritual sages throughout history, and at the, at the root of humanity, and the determination to really keep practicing, keep investigating, keep sitting over and over, for however long it takes. And that is the Bodhisattva vow that we're going to chant in just a moment. Yeah, let's chant the Bodhisattva vow tonight. That is the Bodhisattva vow. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. And they're innumerable beings. It's going to take forever. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Well, desires are unquenchable. It's going to take forever. Dharma gates, that is the truth, the different ways of expressing truth, they're endless. I vow to understand them all. The Buddha, the, the embodiment of wisdom, the embodiment of omniscience, is unsurpassable. I vow to become it, to embody it myself. It is the Bodhisattva vow. And of course, that can't be answered on a rational level. There is a direct level of experience that this happens at. That's an intimate experience. So, with that little snippet of practice, 